0: This special monthly UBU episode on hashtag Black Mental Health is sponsored by Janta Neuroscience and supported by the Painted Brain, a California peer-run organization. Okay, hey Bree, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? So let's talk about something here. This is uh, the unapologetically black unicorns hashtag black mental health. And so we're going to be really talking about black mental health for the black community. I'm black, you're black, it's all good. So we're, we're on a good start. But why don't you tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit about like what it is that you actually do in the mental health world.
1: Yes, I'm Bree Williams, and um, right now I work at PEERS, which stands for Peers Envisioning and Engaging in Recovery Services, and we provide free mental health services like wellness workshops, support groups, and training to the community. I'm the Senior Programs Manager, so I'm over a couple of our programs, such as our Transition Age Youth Program that services young people ages 16 to 24. We have a Hope and Faith program that provides mental health support groups um, in Black churches. So we partner with them and train them on how to facilitate wellness groups. We also have a program called Black Wellness and Resilience, where we provide support groups for African-American folks, just intergenerational. We try to partner with other organizations in the community. Um, Right now, we're, we're partnering with an organization called Black Men Speak, which is another great organization here in California that provides services to both Black men and women, And then we have a healing arts group, which is all about therapeutic healing arts, painting, yoga, meditation, drumming. And then we have a speaker's bureau called Lift Every Voice and Speak, um, which is actually named after Lift Every Voice and Sing. And it comes out of one of our earlier campaigns that was focused on really providing mental health services, culturally relevant mental health services in the African-American community.
0: So I probably should have asked, what don't you do? (laughs) uh, (laughs) That's really a lot. And I love how so much of it also is focused on the Black community, Black culture from our traditions and cultural kind of way of being in the world. So, first of all, how did you get into this work? And then I'm going to ask you to explain to people because they may not know exactly what is a peer, what do they do? But first, how did you even get into doing some of this stuff?
1: Yeah, um, I got into this work as a young person, as a transition age youth myself. I was invited to a uh, transition age youth advisory board that was set at the county. Um, And from there, it essentially took off. I do have my own lived experience, uh, mental health experiences that I've continuously find tools to work through and share because I really, really am an advocate and a believer that mental health doesn't define our destiny, but it's just something to pay attention to. And it's a health issue like any other health issue. And so I got into this work really from me wanting to find a space where uh, my mental health issue wouldn't be the biggest thing about me, but my leadership skills would be and my contribution to the community would be. And I was able to create programs and just be a huge... A voice to young people and Black folks about what mental health looks like in our community and how we can address it and uh, maintain wellness.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. And I really love the first a couple of things that you said that I want to reiterate because it was so powerful is that you know, mental um illness and mental health doesn't really define the destiny. That's really very powerful because sometimes people get a diagnosis. I know it was that way for me, that it was kind of like this is your diagnosis, this is who you are, this is who you will be, these are all the things that you couldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't do, right? Versus kind of like being known as a leader, you know, that that's actually, you know, very much I think my my journey as well, once I figured it out, but didn't have the advantage initially of seeing other people who look like me, um, kind of doing the work or supporting or leading. So when we talk about peer support, what exactly is that? Let's like, pretend we have had one episode on peer support, but let's go back. That was four months ago, right? Let's go back and revisit our definitions. What exactly is peer support?
1: Yeah, peer support is a very unique relationship between two people who have lived experience. and. One may be just entering into their awareness of what um, their mental health looks like, and the other uh, may have had more awareness and they have more resources, more tools, more skills, um, a little bit more education and um, a real, uh, an ability to be able to support that person to achieve wellness. And why it's so important in the Black community um, is because we have a very limited amount of uh, African-American or Black therapists, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists. And um, trying to find people who look like us in those fields can be a bit of a challenge. When you're already going through health so challenges, it's like, come on, I, and you're already going, you know, you're Black already, so you're dealing with racism and just lack of access to, to other, you know, health services and mm-hmm police brutality and et cetera, et cetera, you know, air quality, depending on where you live and just so many things. So peer support specialists really help in finding Black folk, if you know, Black peer support specialists help us in finding those culturally relevant resources um, and even therapists that can help us get to a place of wellness and maintain wellness.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think the majority of my quote-unquote, treatment team uh, were not people of color. So, you know, finally being able to talk to someone who, number one, was going through what I was going through and also look like me really uh, helped me have a much better understanding of kind of what was, like, how to think about like many of the things you're talking about, like racism is going to affect my emotional well being. I don't need to have a diagnosis for that. That's just like a fact. But mm-hmm. um, also, if you're living with a mental health condition, like how much more does it affect sort of your mental health and well being? So, you know, I, th- I think I want to talk a little bit about maybe what you're doing um, in the church. You know, a lot of times people think, oh, Black people, church okay, let's go there. Right? <laughs> so um, so when you're, when you're setting up these support groups in the church, it seems like such a natural place to think about providing support where people already are. If I were to walk into a church or the church where you're doing this kind of work, what does that look like? How do I find the group? How do I become a part of a group and maybe get some uh, support that I might need?
1: What I love about this project is, like you said, the church is a huge resource for us as Black people. hasn't always been the safest place for us to address our mental health concerns, and that's what this campaign is doing, finding churches that are almost radical in the sense that they're having mental health conversations. We've even met with some churches that provide their members with mental health therapy sessions. They get a certain amount of sessions per year. The clinicians are able to build the church for those services, so it's really about finding the churches that maybe are already doing the work um, or really want to do the work and just don't know how to. And we partner with the pastors themselves. So if anybody was interested, you could call the church and talk to the pastor himself mm-hmm. or, you know, the treasurer or, you know, the whole church is involved in these support groups and knowing about them and able to direct people to them because that's the whole goal. Again, we don't always have access to black therapists, and sometimes the peer services is almost just, I won't say it's just enough, but it's very, very impactful because like you said, we already know what we're experiencing and going through. We don't need to be reminded of that or need a diagnosis to say, hey, racism impacts emotional well-being. What we need is to be understood, heard, felt, and get some support and resources. And that's the space that these support groups provide.
0: Yeah, and again, I think it's such a great thing because you're meeting people where they are, not making them go to where we are. You know what I mean? A lot of times it's like, well, Yes, go go to the you know, community mental health center and that might not be an easy thing to get to. Uh, number one, it, you know could take you know hours in the car, hours on a bus, hours walking, hours on your bike, whatever. That might be one barrier. So when you're asking somebody to come for a 15 minute appointment or 20 minute appointment, it may take them an hour on the bus just to get there for the 15 minute appointment and then get on the bus and go somewhere else and, you know, go back home or what have you. So I I mainly have done like group support work as a, as a peer uh, when I was running a peer run organization. And most of my work was supporting people in groups and people would come, or we would actually, one of the cool groups that we had was actually a group where we help people connect on um, computers because a lot of times they didn't have broadband access or they didn't have laptops or tablets. And they also would have to wait in turn at the library and only had a limited amount of time they can use a computer at the library. But these are folks um, primarily who living in congregate living settings and or experiencing homelessness. So we decided, well, what if we had a bunch of laptops and a bunch of tablets, and we took them out to the park. But you could connect to the peer, but you could also take time on uh, connecting either to services, like, oh, I need to go get my library card, or oh, I got to, you know, kind of renew my driver's license. Oh, you know what, I haven't talked to my family. Um, Can I connect to my family on Skype? But um, it really, it was really, really, Very different way of supporting people, no matter where they were on their mental health journey. So, some people could be really struggling, but they knew this is where we're going to be. This is the time we're going to be there. And it was just a time where they could kind of let their guard down and um, ask sometimes for help that, I don't know, maybe they might have been embarrassed to ask about elsewhere. I mean, do you find that in the work that you're doing, if you're doing it like one on one or with groups or other peers are doing, since you're also supervising programs?
1: Absolutely. It's, you know, they're just a lot more comfortable asking for things that they need because in a space where there are peers providing the services, there is a, there is a big sense of humanity and who, uh, yeah, just humanity. Like Mm -hmm. you're not, you're not your diagnosis. You're a person having an experience and there's nothing wrong with needing a little extra support. In fact, support is a huge component of maintaining mental wellness and community care is so important. And that's something that peers has really been trying to um, highlight as well, just knowing where to go in your community, because everybody matters. And sometimes um, it can make you feel like you don't have a purpose. And so that's why these places are so special. Mm -hmm. It's just, you're you're just accepted, and you're able to get the things that you need. Mm -hmm. And being the person, I'll just say for myself, being the person who's kind of been shunned, it's also just a great feeling to give back. I just had to put that out there. You
0: know? Yes, yes. I mean, you, you, you hit on two really critically important things. One of them is community and connection. Um, I think a lot of times what can happen with people, you know, given diagnoses of mental health conditions is the social isolation. And so being able to help people live within that community, be with that in that community and see the variety of resources that are in that community. The, the other thing that you, you brought up was um, you talked about uh, social connection, but you also talked about purpose. And I think a lot of times people forget that the thing that gets everybody up in the morning is meaning and purpose in life things like, you know, are you going to your treatment plan, Johnny? you know, did you take your medication Susie? Those are all great, but those aren't meaning and purpose in life and they're not social connection. And those together really is what help people be human, that humanity you were talking about. So I love that. And I love that peers have the time we, that's the difference I think too, between sort of, um, I would call them maybe like licensed providers is we have more time to spend with people. We're not limited to a 15 minute clock or 50 minute. In some ways we are, but in many ways we are not. So I think that's another beautiful thing that we do. Um, I don't remember if you mentioned RAP. Did you, did you mention wellness recovery action plan?
1: I have not yet. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, So peers was founded on RAP and RAP uh, again, Wellness Recovery Action Plan, great tool um, in two ways. It really reminds people of who they are and how they are and that they get to be creators of their own treatment plans or um, intervention plans or wellness plans. I like wellness plans. (laughs) They get to create their own wellness plans. And it's a training platform and it's a certification platform. So, again, peers get to, you know, can be employed in this, you know, or, you know, make money from this, um, which is important because we need funds, you know, we need to be mm-hmm. able to be paid for our work. And, um, it's a great, great way to be able to share your lived experience and be able to support people or facilitate this process of, you know, finding themselves or, you know, rediscovering themselves and mm-hmm. aiding them in creating this plan that is all by them for them.
0: Right, right. And in their language or in their own writing or in their own artwork. That's the other thing I love about rap plans. I, um, when I first got introduced to rap, I was like, of course I was like, I don't, I'm not a very good rapper. I just, no, there's no, that's not what it is. It's not what it is. I was like, okay. Um, But then I also realized I didn't really like the discipline of writing it out. I, I just wasn't, that just wasn't, it wasn't a good fit for me. But the The kind of cool thing about it is I didn't have to write it out word for word if I wanted to draw what was what I needed so that I could look at the picture and know that image meant something. Or I could put a picture of my family in it if that meant something. I knew what that meant because it was my plan. It wasn't a plan that anybody else had to understand. I had to understand it and that it's a living, breathing thing. So if it was like, Oh, okay. Um, now it's hard to have a picture of my family in my rat plan because my mother's no longer living. So I have to kind of, and I, you know, when she first passed away for literally the first 10 years, just being very blunt about it, I couldn't look at a picture of her. So I had to take the picture out of the rat plan right? Because it was just too hard to look at that picture. I could put it back in now. But anyway, so I think that's the cool thing about the, the RAP plan. It changes as you change. It grows with you. Um, and uh, again, it, it is for you. And we don't have to do any code switching. No coaching, no code switching in the RAP plan. So however you want to communicate or write, whatever works, you get to put it in that plan. And now that I'm talking about code switching, I want to ask about the Black history and connecting it to preschool to prison pipeline and understanding all of that. Is that also work that you're doing?
1: Yes, that's work that I do myself, um, just as a health coach and as a facilitator and a trainer. One, I think just understanding history, I'm going to be corny, but you know where you you come from, you know where you're going. Um, And understanding what our ancestors have gone through and the different ways that Even our mental health experiences has been impacted by that. Education is social. It's environmental. That impacts well-being. Where you live is also environmental and social. That impacts your well-being. Spirituality. You know, there there were a lot of things that uh, that were done to us as a people that impacts our wellness. And I don't think that we, well, I think that we're kind of becoming more wise as to how big of a deal racism is and how much it impacts our wellness because we've normalized so much of our trauma and it's really really important to understand the many things that fall under the umbrella of trauma Mm -hmm. and to be able to address those things whether it be with African healing modalities or practices whether that be with you know black what we what we've learned while being here as Americans black Americans and all of those things like having gardens I mean just putting your hands on the soil, putting your feet in the soil, going to the water, being near water, being in nature, laughing with your girlfriends and just doing rest. You know, our ancestors didn't go rest. Oh, I'm (laughs) sorry. I'm snapping. If anybody can't see me because
0: that rest thing is like on the eight dimensions, you know, we're talking about the eight dimensions of wellness. We could talk about what that is too. We, We were talking about the importance of sleep. And I was saying, you know, there's a difference between sleep and rest. Very big difference, and I think for Black folks today, we're hearing more and more. And I think of the NAP ministry and things like that, that there is this need for us to rest because we're always on—I don't want to say high alert, but heightened alert—kind of as we navigate our way in the world, and we have to understand that as Black folks and the impact it takes on our emotional well-being, our physical well-being, our spiritual well-being. So that rest—you—you so you hit that when you said rest. I was like okay, I could take a nap right now, but we got to finish the podcast on that. Yeah. Yeah, So yeah, keep, keep talking about some of these, these things that you're doing as a a holistic wellness coach and attaching to our our history.
1: Yeah. So everything that I do is attached to our history and wellness. So um, like you said, the eight dimensions of wellness, you know, it's occupational, it's financial, it's physical, emotional, it's spiritual, intellectual, it's social and environmental. And so being able to address those eight areas and, One, understanding the history, right? How were these things taken from us? How do we heal? How do we restore what was lost and stolen, you know, or forgotten? And like in that area, okay, whether it's financial, occupational, emotional, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. Really bringing up things that are cultural to us that we may not even recognize are cultural, that we may um, not do intentionally, that we can do intentionally. Things like moving our body, like physical wellness moves trauma, you know, physical wellness heals trauma, and so doing things like yoga and hiking in nature or just anything physical, even if it's like a boxing or a, a kickboxing class or drumming is very, very healing for black folks. And it's very cultural and we don't recognize that. Um, it heals our heart, you know? So really just understanding that and then connecting black folks to those, those resources in the community that other people that look like us that are doing the work um, and, and free, free or low cost because, We definitely need it. And there are a lot of programs that we don't necessarily know about. And that's one thing that I'm working on as well. is just providing just a huge resource list for people that are free, you know, in all of the eight dimensions of wellness so they can, you know, get these services that they need to be able to maintain their wellness.
0: Wow. That's, that's really great. This is, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're we're getting to a point. Well, I think we've always been this way as a people about, you know, how do we not just take care of ourselves, but how do we take care of our community? How do we take care of our neighbor? I mean, again, I might be dating myself a little bit, but um, even though I'm an army brat, when I was, you know, living in the United States, especially at my grandmother's house, it was like the neighborhood had to take care of the kids. You know, it was like everybody's looking out for everybody else. And I think in a, in in some ways we've we've lost that, and I think now we're reconnecting back to it. And I think it was a deliberate. Um, Now we're going to get deep into our cultural history, but, you know, it was deliberate to make us lose that. You know, there was a deliberateness of breaking up the family, the deliberateness of breaking up the community, um, as has has been done in this country with other peoples, just like, you know, um, Native American peoples of moving people off, you know, their lands and taking their lands and, you know, splitting up the language and the families and all of that. Those things are deliberate, and uh, they are uh, uh, induce um, trauma and generational trauma. And uh, you know, I'm so glad you're doing the work so that people can unpack all of this stuff, especially kind of thinking about those eight dimensions. And I've been thinking about the financial dimension too. So when I think about our work, particularly in community mental health, we're working with people who are in poverty. Like, how are we ever going to get better if we're in poverty? You know what I mean? It's like, those are the kind of things that I think about. So, you know, how do you help people think about financial wellness and financial stability when there are so many barriers to accessing wealth for the black community?
1: Getting people want to even understand what their relationship to their finances is, is the first thing, because, you know, there's this thing like, you know, if you can't manage a hundred, you can't manage, you know, 10, a thousand or whatever. So just getting people into the frequency of, I manage my money well. We do a lot of affirmation. So, you know, I am a person that makes wise financial decisions, you know, things like that, connecting them to services that pay them, like peers will pay people to come to support groups. There's another organization um, called Our Joy, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, but they serve elders through young people and they have like men and women groups. They pay people to come to support groups. So just getting them into the flow of, you know, you can go to these spaces you know, and and get, you know, money. And then what my experience is working with peers and even just myself, the more you get into the space of being seen as a person with something to give and contribute to the the community, you begin to believe in yourself and your skills. You begin to look for other ways and forms of employment. There are a lot of organizations that are funded by the county that employ peers at various levels. When I am engaging people at those levels, it starts there. Just connecting them to places where they can, you know, get checks, getting them into a budgeting type of a mind frame, and then eventually increasing their income. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for other folks, it's pretty much the same. It's really about the mindset, because sometimes I think that words have power. And in our community, that's a cultural thing that we forget, even in, you know, diagnosing ourselves. Early in my journey, a lot of my family was like, stop saying you're this, you know, don't say you have this, because that has power. Um, and mm. then, you know, and there's a lot, there are different trainings that talk about, you know, the see, do, get, so if you see yourself this one way, you'll behave this one way, and then you'll get these certain uh, results based on that, or you'll be treated a certain way, et cetera. So just recognizing that words have power, tapping into a different frequency and belief about um, who you are as a person and your ability to support yourself and, and be financially responsible and sustain yourself and giving resources.
0: That is really powerful. And I love, I love the, affirmations so that you're speaking into the world, what it is that you want to be, even if you're not there yet, it's like, you're walking into it. You're walking into that space. Um, I, and you know, I always think of the Pygmalion effect too. I think it's very similar that, um, you know, if you, if, uh, you know, you think one thing about a group of people, then you treat that people according to what you think, and then the people achieve that thing that you thought about them. So it can it can work kind of in a bad way, but it can also work in a, in a good way. And, um, you know, in early education, you know, it was, um, you know, really hold, um, standards very high so that that the children can reach, um, achieve or work towards achieving the high standards. Don't hold standards low because then the kids will only achieve up to that low standard because that's what you set the expectation for them. So let's talk a little bit about The work we also do beyond just supporting people on their journey to mental well-being along the mental well-being journey is um, peers are also advocates. You know, we help people be self-advocates, and then we also help advocate for better services and systems. So you um, are, are an advocate yourself, and then you also were talking about lift every voice and speak. So can you talk a little bit about your role as an advocate, as a peer advocate?
1: Absolutely. started really uh, in my journey, just super active in the community, but really have a real investment because what happens is a lot of the times is where for some people, mental health challenges can show up early or mental illness can show up early, even like before you're a teen, 12 to 14. You know, you're already dealing with a lot of changes, but you're having this uh, mental health challenge on top of that, that sometimes parents just, oh, they're just being a young person and that's just what they go through. But you're really suffering and really need a lot of support. And so, really, a lot of it is just raising the voice of what does mental health look like in the Black community these days and really connecting Black people to Black services I, and really wanting the county to, to fund those types mm-hmm. of organizations because, like the church initiative, Hope and Faith, getting into space, going to the people, going to where Black people are, like the barber shops, those mm-hmm. types of things are really going to create the the shift that we need for Black people to feel more supported um, and get the support they need culturally yeah. and just, you know, health-wise.
0: Right, right. So you're helping people speak up, speak out, kind of share their stories and be able to inform, you know, systems and others about the things that the Black community needs, right? Um, that sounds like kind of what it's about too. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It was so funny, you know, I never thought of myself as much of a political person or an activist person at all and my my aunt had told me yeah you know you're 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 gonna be an activist you're gonna you're gonna do something in politics and it was like oh, oh, no <laughs> you know, no way that is not who I am I'm number one far too shy for all of that but indeed I think you know as it's kind of like you have to turn your anger into action, you know, into positive action, not just to help yourself, but to help other people. And I think that um, is really also one of the things that you can find um, in our peer work and why it is, I think people are like, well, how can you be a provider provider supporter and also be an advocate? And it's like, well, you're on the front lines of it all. Like any provider could do that, but clearly in our role, in our core competencies of training, that is one of the things that we're called to do is to be that advocate um, about the system for system change to help us and as well as to help people self-advocate for themselves. So, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, we also had to help people think about, um, you know, how to be empowered and how to have, um, you know, the locus of control or be empowered in their own treatment, in their own treatment plan and how to have um, help them figure out how are they going to talk to their providers? I don't know if you've ever done any role playing, but I had to do a lot of role playing with people about kind of like, well, my provider says this, what do I do? Or my family member says this, what do I do? And peers don't tell you what to do, but they'll help you process through kind of in your own words, in your own way. How would you do that? Like maybe through role playing and things. Is that kind of the work you've done as well?
1: Absolutely. That's one thing that I wanted to bring up too with the advocacy. Uh, A lot of role playing. And again, just just being a facilitator, right? Helping the person tease out what do they want to say? How do they want to say it? And knowing that their voice matters. And like you said, it's not anger or aggression, but just a, a message. And knowing how to say that clearly, knowing how to say it without you know, triggering yourself or other people and knowing how to get results Right, Um, but really, just being a self advocate and not being afraid to use your voice—that was one thing that was really impactful for me to learn before I became a peer. Well, I guess I was always a peer in a way, but before I had the training, um, but learning my voice and learning that okay, I don't, you know, I'm angry, but they don't have to know that right now, and and maybe Mm -hmm. they can know, but it's the way I can say that where they'll hear me and I can still get what I need for not only myself but for people like me
0: well, I think you are an unapologetically Black unicorn. That is exactly, she's like, yeah. So anyway, but that is, that's exactly what this, that's, that's what an unapologetically Black unicorn is. And I think we are, you know, work, the work that we're doing is, um, you know, really helping people to be their best selves, kind of like how they want to define that person and helping them to be that person that they see themselves as, or as they want to be. Um, so is there any, are there any last things that you want to talk about or any last like little gems, pearls of wisdom that you would like to leave the audience with that maybe you didn't talk about? Want to make sure.
1: I think I got it all in. Just want to thank you for your space and just appreciate the work you're doing. This is amazing. So thank you for standing in this line of fire and, um, providing this so that people can know that there's support out there and that they're not alone.
0: Well, thank you for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns, hashtag Black Mental Health, because this is about our Black mental health. And it's so important for us to know that, you know, um, you know, a diagnosis is not a destiny. Look at this. We can be peers. We can turn around and we can help other people. We can, you know, um, help to uh, change systems. But most importantly, I think especially for black folks. You're not alone. I think that's the biggest message that, you know, you're such a good example of that. What do they say? I'm the evidence. You know, you are the evidence that uh, recovery is uh, real. It's, it's an expectation. It is possible. And uh, I just want to thank you also for all the work that you're doing and supporting the black community in Oakland and in California. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So for all the listeners, um, this is another um, episode of Hashtag Black Mental Health, and we look forward to you joining us next month for the next episode, and it is on the last Tuesday of every month.